We are going to continue our series. In your mind's eye, you have a vision of what God is like, what you think God is like. Now that vision, as you picture it right now, and what you think God is like is either right or it could be wrong. The question that we need to ask ourselves uh, is where does our understanding, or another word for using uh, the same thing, where does our theology of God come from? Does it come from religion? Does it come from pop culture, your school, wishful thinking, or does it come from scripture and Jesus of Nazareth? And that is why we're in this series that we have called God of the Ages. We are slowly going through this passage in Exodus 34 as Moses receives this self-revelation from God. It's God's kind of great disclosure statement about himself. This is who I truly am. And so we're going to read it. Uh, together again. And my hope is that you'll kind of memorized most of it uh, by the end of these sort of six weeks. And it says this, and he, that's God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes their children and their children for the sin of the parent to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of God. We'll we'll come back to that bit. Um, Toddlers live with their emotions very much expressed at all hours of the day. They are able to feel the most inextricable highs and joys and the deepest Depths of despair, usually in a three-minute period, and it usually uh, revolves around pudding. Um, uh, a few years ago, one of our boys um, was going through a bit of a biting stage, and um, I think this is very normal for toddlers to do. Uh, at least that's the narrative that we live under to make ourselves better about, feel better about it. Um, uh, but, uh, during this stage, there was a time where we picked up um, uh, our boy from nursery, and the nursery worker just pulled us to one side and was just like, just to let you know, um, just to let you know that uh, there was a bit of a biting incident with another child, um, and we thought, thank you, uh, and, uh, and then we kind of went about our day, and then um, in the car, um, I turned to our son and said, um, Oh, my love, my beautiful boy. Um, uh, Mrs. Williams told me that there was a little bit of a biting incident with uh, you and one of the other children. Uh, and then he looked me square in the eyes and just said, and next time I'm going to bite Mrs. Williams. <laughs> you'll, be, um, you'll be pleased to know he's grown out of that phase and he's now a completely emotionally secure and competent young man. Um, Uh, But today we are looking at this phrase, slow to anger. And you know, we all feel and deal with anger. For some of us, it's a more loud and dominant emotion. But for others of us, it might be subtle and uh, more disguised. But for everyone, it is there. 
Like being human means you will get angry. And there is something of a God-given reality to that that we will explore in just a moment. But uh, for some of us, I'm aware that this could be a really hard topic this morning because we live in a deeply broken and sinful world where unjust and hot-tempered anger has ripped through families and torn worlds apart. And so before we do anything else, I just want to say that the God, the gracious and compassionate and unending God of love wants to meet with you this morning. There is healing that is an option for you in his name this morning. So just to say we are here for you. If you want to come speak afterwards, we would love to hear from you and pray with you or uh, go and speak to someone at your table if this is uh, something that um, uh, is triggering for you. But for today... Uh, if you like talk titles, uh, or if you're taking notes, um, here's my talk title for today. A Brief Theology of Anger. The, um, the Hebrew word that we have translated as slow to anger in our passage here is erek apayam, which literally translated, you ready for this? Literally translated, it means long of nostrils. <laughs> Which, and when you, given what it's translating, it's actually quite funny. Um, uh, you think about what happens when someone gets mad. It's kind of like this. It's kind of lit, physically, the nostrils get bigger and longer. Like they flare up. It's like this image of like a, a raging bull, kind of steam coming from the nose and the ears. And so when someone is hot-headed or blows up quickly, that would be someone who is short of nostrils. What Erek Apayam is getting at is that God can get angry, but it takes an incredibly long time. Let's break this uh, phrase down into uh, two parts. Firstly, God is slow to anger, meaning that God doesn't fly off the handle all the time. Other descriptions of God uh, are patient, forbearing, even long-suffering. And that's consistent throughout the whole arc of Scripture. Proverbs 17 says this, Better an erect, a pion person than a warrior, one with self-control, than the one who takes a city. You see, God exercises self-control over anger. It doesn't let him consume him over and over and over again. He forgives second, third, fourth, fifth chances. He patiently waits for his beloved, as it says. And so if your view of God is that he is an angry judge who is waiting for you to slip up so he can zap you with his ruling stick, that isn't the God that Scripture reveals. That is not the God of the Bible. He is slow to anger. But the second part of that phrase is that he is slow to anger. God gets angry. It's not something that we talk about a lot here. It's not really something that's talked about a lot in many churches, um, often because it kind of needs quite a lot of explanation and context first. And so... We're going to give that a go. You up for it? Three of you at the front are up for it. Um, Unfortunately, I've got the microphone. So here we go. Um, 
uh, we're going to look at a couple of passages to kind of help us paint this picture of of what's happening in the whole of Scripture. Psalm 7, the psalm says this, God is a righteous judge, uh, a God who displays his wrath every day. And then King David in Psalm 5, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. You, Lord, detest. The Lord detests. God hates. But I thought that God was a God of love and peace and joy. Or first of all, notice who or what God gets angry at. It's wickedness, violence, and bloodthirsty abuse. You know, when someone says to me, and we get this quite a lot, particularly on Alpha, um, when someone says to me, I like the idea of Jesus, he kind of just seems like a great dude, like a nice, like, good guy. But I can't believe in a God of wrath. Just seems angry. Just seems kind of too much. And what I often want to say, it's not always appropriate, but what I often want to say is this, I totally understand why you think that, but I think that you actually can believe in a God who gets angry. You see, every time you hear about the horrendous evil that exists in our world, Satva even just mentioned some of it, when you think to yourself, that isn't right, that is surely surely not how things are supposed to be, you are thinking and feeling that because you're right. It is not how things are supposed and meant to be. That is not God's will for this world. There is no secret plan behind all the injustice in the world. It's evil, and that is it. It's evil, plain and simple. And yes, God has a plan, a redemptive plan, to work all of this mess and chaos into good, but we live in the pain of that process. I would actually go as far to say that you actually need a God who gets angry. Because the alternative, think about the alternative. If God was passively oblivious to the pain of this world, that would be so much worse. That would be far worse for you and me and for everyone in this world. I would describe that as hopelessness. Because God is a God of justice. He has designed and also now longs for our world to be good, to be free. And so where there is wickedness and abuse and evil in the world, then God has a righteous anger towards it. It's taking creation away from its original design. And in his justice, he wants freedom for his own creation. John Stott captures this, I think, really helpfully in his description of righteous anger, where he says, that, his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. And so there's a a challenge in in this for us, 
you know, you hear again and again the stories of injustice and pain where vulnerable adults and children are oppressed and abused, where victims are silenced by one mean or another, which is happening in our world all the time, all around us here, even in Southampton. And if you hear those stories and there isn't eventually something that kind of just like rises up in you where you feel anger towards the injustice, then I would say that is not because you've achieved some kind of like zen-like spiritual maturity where that just doesn't bother you anymore. I would suggest that there is stronger evidence that you are emotionally dead and spiritually giving up. You need a God who gets angry because God is a God of justice. He has a righteous, a godly anger towards sin, injustice, oppression. And because we are called to be like him in all of his ways, to be like him, that righteous anger should also be burning in us and not leading us to fly off the handle and kind of pour out our outrage and abuse. That would just be joining in with the very thing that you're becoming angry at. It would lead us into action, lead us into response, to stand against injustice, to fight for our neighbours and to stand with the poor and the vulnerable. You see, God's end goal is a world with no evil. Like that's what we're heading for. That's what we're hoping for. God's justice isn't about retribution and revenge. It's about the healing and the renewal of the entire world. It's the redemption of all of creation. And God is working towards that future. And you are his partner. This church are to be ambassadors to the good news that God is working towards that kind of future. And here is why it's so important for us to understand this. It's so important that we don't skip over passages like this, is that anger in its godly form is an expression of love. You see, Jesus, even Jesus, love incarnate, the perfect human who is without sin, that Jesus got angry. There's this like caricature uh, that the God of the Old Testament, uh, you know, the God of Exodus 34 is this kind of vengeful, angry, bloodthirsty, ready to zap you at any moment God. But Jesus is like kind of fun-loving, sandal-wearing, like hippie, peace man, like a kind of like a man version of Paddington Bear, just like lovely all the time. But you know, neither of those things are true. In opposite directions, neither of those things are what Scripture reveals. Matthew 21, we have this well-known scene of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple courts. I'm going to read it in a second, but just a bit of context to that. It's this scene of deceit and corruption. You see, poor uh, villagers would have been traveling from all of the surrounding areas into the city that they couldn't afford to live in. And they were traveling to offer animal or monetary sacrifices, as was custom according to Jewish law at the time. And uh, when they arrived, they were being told, your offering's not good enough. It is not without blemish. That's not going to do, that's not going to be a worthy offering for you to offer in the temple. But... Good news, we have a great dove for you. Um, And you can buy our our dove from us at just an extortionate price. 
It's this kind of scene of extortion. Those coming, just kind of vulnerably wanting to connect with God, enter the presence of God. And people were being told, no, they were not good enough. And so into that scene, we see this in Matthew 21. Jesus, uh, and, uh, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he says this, it is written... My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This is not a laid back, chill Jesus. The poor and the vulnerable are being exploited by those in power. They're being denied free access to the presence of God. But this response This is Jesus' act of love. It is precisely because he so loves his people. Where he sees injustice, he will act. See, Jesus' anger at the injustice is his very expression of love. For with God, love and justice flow from the same stream. Uh, I would argue that the opposite of love is not hate. I think hate's too active. I think the opposite of love is apathy. It is an inaction towards what is wrong in the world. It is an inaction towards evil. And Jesus is anything but apathetic. You see, God is love. Jesus, God incarnate, is love. Scripture doesn't teach that God is anger. It says that he gets angry slowly where there is a consistent lack of repentance by those who are doing wrong. And we know that this was a slow build for Jesus. Think about it. He's been walking to and fro and into this temple since he was a young boy. We know that. So it's taken like 30 years of build-up for him to have this moment Jesus didn't just turn up and fly off the handle because he was just having a bad day. This was a slow to anger, a righteous build up, which he knew would ultimately lead to his arrest arrest and then to his crucifixion. This was an intentional act of love. And this active love would lead him to a cross where love and justice flow like a river as he poured his life out for you. I think one of the reasons that we find it so hard to get our heads around God's anger is because it is so different to ours. We get angry if Alexa isn't listening to us properly (laughs) and plays the Beach Boys rather than the Beastie Boys. Like, um, to, like, total kind of like, you know, Chatham House rules, confidentially, raise your hands if you've had an argument with an AI smart speaker, smart speaker robot. Come on. And it's like half of the room. Just for the purpose of the stream, it's half the room and the other room are just lying. <laughs> you know, we get angry at just like such different things to the things that God gets angry at. I think human anger is almost always selfish. It's about us and our needs. We feel hurt, so we're quick to judge. We feel embarrassed, and so we lash out. Or we feel stressed, 
and then we're short-tempered. I think human anger is much like any Liam Neeson film of the last 10 years, (laughs) where at the beginning of the film, his daughter or son gets kidnapped, and then he spends the next 90 minutes killing up to 40 to 50 people uh, to avenge uh, the daughter that, it turns out, is actually alive at the end of the film and rescues her. It's just not proportional. Our anger is not proportional most of the time. Our anger, I would say, is often in a rush. It doesn't wait for the whole story. And it's most often about underlying stress, about other things expressing themselves in frustration in this particular event or at that particular person. You know what? Try be stressed about delivering a talk on anger all week uh, and, and see what it does to you. It's an, emotionally t- it's an emotional turmoil uh, all week. I'm like, so ready for Monday. But God's anger, it, it's patient. It's slow, meaning his ego isn't bruised. But rather, he has a heart of justice and his baseline is compassion and graciousness. So, um, uh, before I move on, um, uh, we'll get to our response in just a second. Um, I want to cover that last line in our reading, which, um, it's a doozy. Um, uh, So we'll go back to it. It may have made some of you squirm. It says this, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Just reading that, like on face value, that is a cringe line, right? You're like, The Bible sometimes says that. It's the kind of line that your intellectual and argumentative cousin will bring up at Christmas. (laughs) Um, um, And you know what? I've got a great answer for you. It's actually such good news. Misunderstood, kind of missed in the transliteration from the Hebrew. This is actually such great news. And so I think there's a couple of layers to this line. Um, uh, But firstly, it cannot mean what it means on face value in our English translation. Moses himself, in Deuteronomy, just a few pages later, says the exact opposite of what God is appearing to say here, uh, where he says, parents are not to be put to death for their children or their children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. That's according to the Jewish law. And there are many, many other lines that I could give you, three or four others, at least the next few pages uh, throughout scripture that talk about each person taking responsibility for their own wrongdoing, not parents or anyone else. So what Exodus 34 cannot mean is that because your great-grandmother didn't pay taxes her whole life, God's now coming after you to like make you pay for it. It's not what it is saying. There are a few layers, as I said, and one layer is saying that this, that children often have to live in the fallout of the generation before their, them's sin. Ultimately, like children often have to pay for and live in the fallout of their parents' sin. If mum and dad run a meth lab and get arrested for life, the children have to live in the painful absence 
of attentive parents. They have to pay for the consequence. If mum and dad's marriage ends in a vicious divorce, then the children have to live in the consequences of that relational breakdown and carry its pain. But the reality is that there is a ripple effect to sin and that people have to live in the fallout of it. That's the first layer that it's getting at. But there's another layer, and I think that this is the main point uh, that this line is trying to make or making. Uh, it's this, um, it, it, what we need to understand about this line is that Exodus 34, 7 to 8, it, it's actually like, it's a poem. It has this poetic and rhythmic kind of rhythm to it in its original language. It kind of takes the shape of poetic language. And there's this like topping and tailing as part of it. That is, they use numbers to make its point. It says thousands and third and fourth. Maintaining love to thousands, but punishing to the third and fourth. This line is is painting for us the picture of the unevenness of God's forgiveness. It's trying to get us to see how, how ridiculous it is that God is so forgiving and so kind. Kind of creates this like image of uneven scales. On the one side, there's God's justice bringing consequence to evil and sin, like to the third and fourth. It says there is a consequence to wrongdoing. There is a consequence to evil. And there, will, uh, there is a reality to that. But then on the other side is God's loving mercy. Maintaining love and forgiveness to thousands. Or as the New Testament puts it, mercy triumphs over judgment. That really is the heart of Exodus 34 verse 7. See, God is just, and that is good news today for you and for me and for our future as we seek and pray for the renewal of all things. So God is just. He does have a righteous anger towards evil, and there are consequences to that evil. But he is also relentlessly forgiving. He can't help but show mercy. It's just simply who he is. And when judgment bumps up against mercy, mercy wins every single time. And that is why the cross is such good news for you. You see, forever you and me live under the invitation to repent simply means to turn around, to turn and to hear the beautiful words of our Father saying, you are forgiven For everything, you are forgiven. Our sin has been justly dealt with by the life-giving love of Jesus. God's mercy has triumphed over our sin and the verdict is that you're free. You are free to go and live in him. Can I get an amen? Amen. So what about you and me? Where does that leave us? You know, we look at passages like this as, uh, as disciples of Jesus. We kind of ask ourselves these kinds of questions like, how am I becoming more like God? How am I kind of moving into uh, the person that God created and intended me to be? And so when we look at passages, uh, we think God is compassionate. Well, then are you? 
Well, God is gracious. Well, then are you. God is slow to anger. Are you? Just to be totally honest with you, I am not slow to anger. I think if we're going to put a list of flaws together uh, about me and my personality, and you could verify this with Hannah and the kids and my personal friends, please don't actually do that as a joke. Um, uh, that would really not make me feel good. Um, but if we're going to put a list, I'd say like at, or if not very near the top, it would be impatience. Like I find it really hard to wait for things. I really don't like it when things uh, don't go according to plan. And my goodness, having kids is the best. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just the best experience of my life, genuinely. But you know what? Flip, it exposes your weaknesses. It exposes the areas where you have a lot of room for growth. Can you put the shoes on? Hey, guys, um, we're just about to go. Please, can you put the shoes on? Please, I just love you to put your shoes on. Um, oh my goodness, can you please put your shoes on? <sighs> and the nostrils get bigger. <laughs> Maybe for you it's like the feeling of a lack of control. When you don't get your own way, or you feel like things are out of control and just like frustration and annoyance and judgment of others, it just builds up and up and again, your nostrils start to flare. And like these are the waters that we swim in, right? It's like it's really hard for us because like that's kind of the world that we live in. So often it feels like we're living in these scales of unevenness, but they're the wrong way around. There's not much mercy and forgiveness at the top end. And there is plenty of judgment and aggression and cancelling and revenge weighing down the bottom. So how do we become more like the people of love God has called us to become? How do we do it? You know, at this point, I feel like I could say a few things, like get yourself into a core group with two or three others, confess and be accountable, I, great idea. For some, you'll benefit from therapeutic help in this area, and uh, please do explore that. Those are truly valuable, truly, truly helpful things. But for today, let me just simply say this. What you most deeply need... What you most deeply need is to meet with and encounter the Lord, the Lord, the gracious, the compassionate, the abounding in love kind of God. You need to meet with his love. You need to encounter him, to know him, to experience him. You need to meet with a God who is not angry or impatient with you, but he longs for you. The Bible describes it, he is jealous for you. The God who loves you and likes you, who formed you in your mother's womb. The God who sees all of your shortcomings and sees you wrestle with these big emotions and sees the shame that you carry from where it has got you to at times and says, there is no condemnation for you. 
There is no condemnation for you that are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. The verdict has been set. The, the, the scales have been weighed and it's mercy that wins. It's his loving mercy that wins every single time. God raises us up with Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What you need to do this week is not try harder. If I said to you and kind of gave you a list of things to do that would inevitably become you trying harder, I promise you that will have the opposite effect of you growing in patience and not getting angry. It will just be frustrating. But rather what you need is to encounter a loving heavenly father who generously pours his spirit into your heart to be filled with his love to the thousandth. A thousandth degree. And so right now, instead of giving you a list of things to do, what I'd rather do is pray for you. I want to pray that you would know the compassionate and gracious and patient presence of your heavenly Father and encounter his powerful love this morning. And that, 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 the gift of God in you, that would ignite the work of renewal that you so deeply long for, growing you into a person of love and joy and peace. So if I may, can I pray? Um, I encourage you just to close your eyes, but um, we're going to do things slightly differently and we will worship in a second. Um, uh, I am aware this is going to require some courage, but I just think this is what the church is for. Uh, If anyone who feels comfortable and able, who would like to receive prayer, particularly prayer to grow in patience and encounter God's loving kindness today, can I just invite you to stand? just because I'd love to know who I'm praying with and for. Thank you. If you're just able to stand and um, love to pray with you. If you've kind of got that like, oh, I want to, I'm not sure, just um, no one's going no to think anything other than we would love to pray with and for you. I'm not going to ask you to come down the front either. Thank you. Father God, God of compassion, God of grace, God of abounding love. Would you meet with us? We long to have a greater glimpse, a greater revelation of your love for us. So hard to get our heads around. So hard to understand, so simple, but so hard. That God loves you, he loves you, he is for you. So God, I pray particularly for those brave souls that are standing. Lord, would you flood them with your spirit right now. Fill them with your kindness. Fill them, touch their hearts. Renew them, Lord. And for all of us, Lord, would you fill us?
with a greater sense and a knowledge of you. That we might understand that the God of Scripture, that Jesus of Nazareth, is a God of love, who longs, who ushers us into becoming like him. We are forgiven and we are yours. Thank you, Lord.